Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, I'm talking to Dr. John J. Pitney, Jr., author of the book, The Politics of Autism, Navigating the Contested Spectrum, published in 2015 by Roman and Littlefield. Dr. Pitney Jr. is a Roy P. Crocker Professor of American Politics at Claremont McKenna College. He is the author of The Art of Political Warfare and the co-author of several books, including Epic Journey, the 2008 Elections and American Politics, as well as After Hope and Change, the 2012 Election and American Politics. In addition to his scholarly work, he has held staff positions in the U.S. Congress and the New York State Legislature. He maintains several blogs, including Autism Policy and Politics. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So could you start by telling us about your professional background in autism? Well, I don't have a uh, professional background in autism per se. Uh, My Ph.D. is from Yale where I studied public policy issues uh, with uh, Theodore Marmor, uh, who's a leading expert on healthcare policy. Uh, Worked on insurance issues in the New York State Legislature, uh, which, as it turns out, uh, is a major part of autism policy and politics. Uh, As for autism itself, uh, a lot of it comes from uh, the experience of a family member who uh, is on the spectrum, and that uh, introduced me in a very direct way to the world of autism and to the many unanswered questions surrounding it. When did you first start focusing on autism within your political science work? Uh, this was after a, uh, my, uh, my family member's uh, diagnosis. Uh, didn't really know a great deal about autism before that, and this was uh, approximately in uh, the year 2004. Uh, but uh, as we continued on the journey and I learned more, I realized that there was relatively little writing in political science on the subject. Uh, there is uh, a scholar, Dana Baker, at Cal State Channel Islands who has written about it and continues to write about it. The late Trudy Storynagel at uh, Kent State uh, probably wrote some of the foundational pieces on autism. Unfortunately, she uh, died tragically in in 2009 in an incident that involved her son, who was uh, severely affected on the spectrum. Uh, So I figured that uh, given my background in public policy in general and some firsthand exposure to the issue, I thought it would be uh, a valuable contribution uh, to write something more systematically about the topic. Now, on this channel, we usually talk about the psychology of 
different kinds of experiences or conditions. So some of our listeners might be wondering, what exactly does a political scientist do? And what, what might a political scientist or a political science perspective have to offer autism? Those are great questions. Uh, political scientists study government and politics. Uh, Harold Laswell, uh, a great political scientist of the early 20th century, uh, referred to politics as the science of who gets what and why. Uh, it encompasses the obvious institutions of government, uh, the uh, federal government and the states here in the United States, uh, as well as comparative politics, comparisons between the United States and other countries. But it also encompasses uh, topics of public policy and interest groups. And uh, all of this comes into play in the area of uh, autism. People may wonder, well, what does autism have to do with politics? And uh, there are a couple of answers to that. One is that uh, much of the funding for autism treatment comes from government. Uh, here in the state of California, the regional centers uh, pay for a great deal of applied behavior analysis. Uh, there are also, in most states now, laws requiring insurance companies to pay for ABA. Uh, and many other issues are implicated as well. Uh, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, which um, largely governs special education in the schools, is tremendously important uh, for uh, families uh, dealing with uh, autism. And there, it's also political in a much broader sense as well. Politics involves what counts as an issue. Uh, how do issues come to the fore? How do issues uh, enter the public sphere? And uh, that, I think, is uh, at least as interesting as the specific policy and process issues uh, involved in, in, in autism. As uh, most listeners may know, uh, autism as we know it was not identified until the 1940s by uh, Leo Connor in the United States and Hans Osberger uh, working in Austria. It really uh, didn't become a truly major national issue until the 1990s after the passage of uh, a law in 1990, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which was a revision of the uh, Education for All Handicapped Children Act. Uh, that provided for reporting of data, and uh, we find since 1990, the number of reported uh, cases of autism in the schools has increased. Uh, that's driven largely uh, by the reporting process itself. Uh, one of the unanswered questions, and nobody really knows the answer, uh, has the actual preva prevalence, the true prevalence of autism increased over the years? Uh, much of it, uh, much of the reported increase in prevalence reflects greater awareness and more systematic reporting, but no one can say for sure that there has not been a true increase in prevalence, and uh, that will remain controversial for a long time to come. For our listeners who may not really know, what exactly is autism, and how has the definition changed over time? Uh, it's also uh, an excellent question. And uh, autism is uh, a disorder or a difference 
of social communication. Uh, and uh, the definition has indeed changed over the years. During the early years of autism research, there was a fairly restrictive definition, uh, and the uh, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, uh, of the American Psychiatric Association has uh, been revised several times, uh, laying out different diagnostic criteria for autism. Uh, which means that uh, as a result of these changes, the reported prevalence has changed. Uh, at one time, there was an estimate that uh, maybe one in 10,000 people would count for uh, to be on the spectrum. Uh, then it was one in 50, one in 150. Uh, and now uh, the, uh, the most recent estimate in both the United States and Canada it's somewhere in the vicinity of one in 60 or one in 66. Uh, another complication is that uh, the uh, criteria used in the DSM are not necessarily the same as the criteria used by schools. Uh, so the DSM diagnosis uh, definition of autism isn't necessarily that which guides uh, schools, and that may lead to some differences and some anomalies in the statistics. Uh, but uh, the best overall uh, definition is a, is a problem in social communication, and it varies widely. That's why we have the phrase autism spectrum. Uh, there are people who are autistic who are uh, uh, very verbal, uh, who uh, have no problem with writing, uh, they do have problems with social communication, uh, but uh, have managed to make very successful careers. And then you have other people on the spectrum who are nonverbal, who may also have diagnosis of intellectual disability. Uh, so the, uh, the spectrum is very broad. Uh, it encompasses uh, a, a wide variety of symptoms, leading to the phrase that's familiar to the autism community, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. Uh, as time goes on, uh, we may have uh, a more refined definition that divides it into various uh, categories, various kinds of autisms, plural, uh, but uh, that is in the future. Uh, right now, we uh, uh, the term encompasses a very broad and uh, sometimes very confusing uh, array of symptoms. So you said that politics is what decides what is an issue. So how is autism an issue, not just for the individuals who deal with it, but how is it an issue for the country as a whole? Sure. Uh, it's an issue for the country uh, as a whole in, uh, in a variety of ways. First, uh, when you look at the legislation uh, providing for social services and special education, uh, those policies are administered by agencies of government and paid for by the taxpayers. Uh, that is very much uh, a public issue, a political issue. Uh, you also have uh, the regulations that come into play, the uh, laws uh, mandating insurance coverage by health insurance companies. That's been uh, a very big issue in state legislatures, most recently in Georgia. 
uh, again, another political issue. Then you have the very controversial matter of the theory, uh, largely disproved, that vaccines have something to do with autism. Uh, that uh, became much more prominent in the United States in the 1990s and early 2000s uh, with Andrew Wakefield, uh, a British physician whose uh, license to practice was eventually uh, pulled uh, by the, the British authorities. Uh, he uh, published a paper, again, retracted uh, by uh, The Lancet, uh, that suggested that uh, uh, the uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine had something to do with autism. It turns out it doesn't. But uh, that uh, gave an impetus to the notion that vaccines cause autism. And to this very day, a number of people uh, believe in it. They're delaying vaccinations, which in turn leads to uh, other political issues, that is, uh, laws in the states that require school children to be vaccinated before they uh, they can attend school. Uh, so uh, these are just some of the political and policy issues that come into play. There are others as well. Uh, take, for instance, law enforcement. Uh, the uh, very often people on the spectrum, uh, because of their difficulties in social communication, uh, may have uh, uh, problematic interactions with law enforcement. There is a case uh, just a, a couple of months ago in Buckeye, Arizona, where there was uh, a, an autistic youth uh, who was in a park, basically minding his own business, not bothering anybody, but he was stimming, that is, engaging in self-stimulatory behavior, uh, flapping his hands. That's something that many people on the autism spectrum feel a need to do. Police officers spotted him, didn't understand what was going on, and thought that this person might be on drugs. Uh, as a body cam video uh, uh, showed, the officer approached him, and the situation spun out of control. The police officer uh, arrested him, and now that uh, has led to a great deal of legal trouble for the, uh, the city of Buckeye. And that's just one of many incidents uh, where uh, interactions between first responders and uh, people on the spectrum have uh, have gone south. That's why uh, a, a number of uh, police departments and fire departments have what, as well uh, have uh, brought in people to train first responders in recognizing uh, the symptoms of the spectrum and dealing with people on the spectrum. And that is a positive development. And that also is uh, part of the broader range of political issues that uh, autism involves. Well, I, that's a great question, and uh, particularly when it comes to uh, special education, the uh, system in the United States puts a great deal of burden on parents to be advocates for their children. Uh, in uh, the schools, for instance, uh, you go into an IEP, Individual Education Program, uh, the IEP meeting. Uh, sometimes those meetings can be very contentious. The parents who do best are the parents who can afford to get some kind of assistance, either in the form of a parent advocate or an attorney. Uh, and sometimes parents uh, do not get the plan that they want and so that they will they will take those uh, those plans 
into uh, due process, a, uh, a procedure that's laid out in law and regulation. Uh, and uh, the parents who know to do this are often parents with money and education and professional connections. Uh, parents without these advantages uh, generally just take what they can get. And that leads to considerable inequality in the services available to people with autism and other disabilities. Uh, that is a, a major political problem. And if you look more broadly at the array of services that are available from other levels of government here, again, here in California, uh, the regional centers, the um, uh, parents uh, must have to know that the regional centers are there. They need to work with advocates. They need to know, frankly, how to work the system. And uh, without very vigorous parent advocacy, uh, people, uh, uh, young people on the spectrum probably aren't going to do uh, as well as they could. Uh, so this is, uh, as we move forward, an ongoing problem for uh, people with autism and other disabilities. Uh, because so much depends on the parents, uh, a lot of advantage accrues to parents who already have economic and social advantages. What are some of the specific services or accommodations that people with autism need that are most difficult to get? Uh, probably uh, the one that most autism families will talk about is ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, uh, sometimes referred to as the gold standard of, uh, of autism treatment. Uh, it applies uh, the, uh, uh, the principles of behavioral psychology, breaking tasks down into individual parts, and providing reinforcement to uh, to people on the spectrum, usually young people on the spectrum, uh, to uh, uh, change behavior, uh, to acquire a, a broader range of behavior. For example, uh, maintaining eye contact. Uh, many uh, kids on the spectrum have difficulty making and maintaining eye contact, and ABA often is used uh, to get them to uh, develop greater skill at eye contact. Now, as I point out in the book, everything about autism is controversial and ABA is no exception. Hmm. Uh, even though uh, there's a good deal of literature behind this method, there are critics and especially critics uh, among self-advocates, people on the autism spectrum, some of them are uh, very unhappy with uh, their own experience with ABA, uh, very critical of, um, of the way it's administered. And, uh, you know, I'm in no position to resolve that controversy. But it illustrates the broader point that, uh, again, nearly everything about autism ultimately is political and nearly everything about autism is contentious. Uh, as I explained to my colleagues on college campuses, Autism politics is like faculty politics on crystal meth, uh, very contentious and sometimes very emotional. Do you mind sharing what some of the critiques are of ABA? Sure. Uh, there is uh, a significant uh, uh, evidence base of ABA. There is quite a bit of literature. 
but as I understand it, the uh, and again, I, uh, let me emphasize, I'm not a psychologist here, but as I understand uh, the criticism is that uh, the focus is on behavior, not thought. Uh, and critics of ABA uh, argue that uh, it uh, trains people to uh, imitate neurotypical behavior without developing necessarily uh, cognitive function, without necessarily uh, developing the ability to think. And uh, that's, uh, a, you know, that's one level of uh, criticism. Another level of criticism goes back uh, to uh, the origins of ABI. Ivar Lovas uh, at UCLA uh, was uh, one of the major figures in developing ABA as a treatment for autism. And critics will point out that Lovas initially uh, used aversive techniques, uh, that is, shocks and slaps, uh, as, uh, as part of the repertoire. Uh, ABA has long abandoned that, but uh, the origins are still uh, troubling to people who uh, who look at the history, and also Lovas, very early on, was uh, was one of the psychologists uh, who uh, tried to use similar techniques uh, to uh, uh, get people to stop being gay, uh, which we know now is uh, well how bad that is. Uh, I, I think is well known. Uh, but it's uh, something that, um, that causes a great deal of controversy, even though uh, ABA hasn't been used that way in decades. Uh, so those are some, um, some areas of controversy. And um, the, uh, uh, the comeback for uh, the advocates of ABA is this, uh, what's the alternative? Um, and uh, there are other approaches, but... Uh, Right now, ABA is the uh, is the approach that appears to have the greatest uh, empirical foundation. Perhaps uh, at some point in the future, there'll be another approach that uh, has uh, more support and more foundation. But uh, from the standpoint of policymakers, you go with the best thing that's available. Now, when it comes to ABA, a lot is going to depend on uh, the people who administer it. In most ABA programs, uh, a psychologist will uh, develop the program, but the actual day-to-day contact with uh, kids on the spectrum uh, belongs to therapists who uh, are not psychologists. Very often, they're college students or recent college graduates, and the quality will vary. Uh, Some people have a talent for this, and some don't. Some people are very good at it, and some aren't. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why uh, the results are not necessarily consistent. Not everybody benefits equally from ABA. And part of the reason is not everybody who administers ABA is equally good. It, it makes me wonder if you could give us a glimpse into a t- the typical week of a family with a child with autism, trying to make sure that a child uh, goes to therapy. How, I mean, I'm wondering how many days a this and how many hours logistically what does it involve for parents to get their children this kind of therapy well that's a great question and uh one of the battles parents often have to fight is getting the hours uh either through a social service agency 
or through their school. The gold standard for ABA is 40 hours a week. This is extremely, wow. yeah, this is extremely uh, time intensive. And uh, typically, uh, the therapists come to the home and uh, the, uh, the therapist will sit with the child and uh, in, often in a play setting and, uh, and uh, uh, ask them to do various things such as maintain eye contact or uh, uh, try to maintain uh, uh, a quiet posture for a short period of time, uh, a variety of things. Uh, but 40 hours a week, uh, and, and obviously as children get older, the, uh, uh, the behaviors involved are, are more complex. But that's only part of it, and that's why uh, the whole issue of autism is so complicated. Only part of uh, the ABA is only the beginning. There's also speech therapy. Many people on the spectrum have difficulty with speech. And those difficulties range, on the one hand, from uh, from people who are nonverbal, uh, who uh, cannot speak at all, who never, in fact, develop uh, the power of speech, to uh, people who can talk, but the prosody, the rhythm and tone uh, are atypical and, uh, and very distinctive. Uh, so speech therapists uh, come into play as well. Uh, there is occupational therapy. Uh, which can encompass uh, matters of uh, balance and coordination, but also the ability to uh, deal with various textures. Uh, many people on the spectrum have difficulty with certain kinds of clothing. Uh, that may sound like a trivial concern, but uh, for people on the spectrum, wearing, for instance, uh, uh, wool is, uh, is, is like wearing sandpaper. Feeding is an issue. Many people on the spectrum have food aversions, and we're not talking about the typical picky eating that so many kids have. Uh, we're talking about uh, a phenomenon where when a person on the spectrum may have a sip of apple juice, uh, that person's brain processes the, uh, uh, the taste as if it were battery acid. Uh, and so as a result, many, uh, many kids on the spectrum have very, very restricted diets, and that leads to various health problems. And speaking of health problems, many people on the spectrum have uh, co-occurring conditions such as gut problems. Uh, and so they have to uh, see other kinds of uh, uh, medical professionals as well. Uh, adaptive physical education, uh, often offered at schools. Many people on the spectrum uh, are uh, are poorly coordinated, and I don't mean just uh, not picked for the for the uh, for the team, as so many people are, but uh, have difficulty with very very basic functions. Uh, and so, when you add it all up for uh, for kids on the spectrum, uh, the life of a parent is a life of appointments. Uh, much the ABA is delivered at home, but many of the other services involve appointments. And if you're in a rural area, uh, you may have to drive for a very long time to reach your appointment. Uh, that's why uh, autism is never easy, but it's probably a bit easier uh, to be an autism family in a, a major city or suburb than in a rural area. 
And again, uh, inequality is part of the, the, the picture here. Uh, people in these uh, urban areas uh, have an advantage over people who have to uh, drive long distances and may not have the resources uh, to, uh, to be effective advocates for their children. I, I want to also talk about education, as I understand from what you say in the book, that this is another area in which there are heated political issues. What, what are some of the political issues involved in making sure autistic children get the kind of education and accommodations that they need? Sure. Uh, there's a phrase called the dilemma of difference. The dilemma of difference is this. On the one hand, if you treat, the more that you treat kids with autism and other disabilities differently, you raise the risk of stigma. Uh, if kids are pulled out of class for services, if they uh, are in an identifiable special education class, the other kids are going to notice and, and regard them differently. But if you treat uh, people with disabilities exactly the same, then you're not dealing with those disabilities, and that's a problem too. Uh, and that's a, and that's a balance, and that's a dilemma that uh, that every school and every disability family has to deal with. Uh, there's also the level of services. How much service is the school going to pay for? What kinds of service? This has uh, been not only a, a political issue, but a uh, significant legal issue in the interpretation of uh, the law. First, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, and then the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. For a long time, the controlling Supreme Court decision, uh, the Rowley case, uh, was a problem for families because it indicated that the schools could get away with a very, very low and basic level of service. More recently, a very recent development in the Supreme Court, the so-called Andrew F. case, uh, suggests uh, that uh, the courts are going to hold schools to a much higher standard. Uh, and that's uh, people... Uh, receiving disability, uh, receiving special education in the United States are entitled to a much higher level of service. Uh, now, how this case actually plays out uh, in schools across the country remains to be seen, again, because so much falls on the parents and on their ability to be advocates for their children and on their ability to uh, get professional assistance. Uh, but uh, I think most uh, disability families, most autism families, were very heartened by the Supreme Court decision in Andrew F. But referring back to the first case that you cited that allowed schools to implement a standard that held them less responsible for providing services, what was the legal rationale that allowed that? Well, uh, the case was so-called Rowley case involving Amy Rowley, uh, who is a hearing impaired person who is, to this day is, uh, is an advocate for people with disabilities. Um, and uh, her parents uh, wanted her to, uh, in a, uh, to have a much higher level of support in the form of sign language interpretation. Uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, the court ruled that the language of the statute didn't necessarily provide that level of service, didn't have that requirement in it. Uh, and Andrew F. Uh, has applied a higher standard. Some of the problem 
lay in the ambiguity of the law itself. If you read the statute, it's not absolutely clear what level of service uh, students are entitled to. Uh, and uh, Andrew F. Uh, uh, is, uh, uh, is a resource for parents to demand more. Uh, another problem here is that uh, the foundational laws were written basically not with autistic people in mind. Uh, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, for example, was a reaction to some lower court cases involving people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, championed by uh, people in Congress, including Bob Dole, uh, had a focus on people with visible physical disabilities. Bob Dole, of course, uh, lost the use of his right arm in World War II. Uh, there were uh, others. Uh, Evan Kemp, who was head of the EEOC at the time, uh, was in a wheelchair, used a wheelchair. Uh, and uh, there was relatively little attention to autism, in part because autism was not as prominent then as it is today. Uh, if we were starting from scratch, writing IDEA and ADA today, uh, there would probably be much more specific uh, acknowledgement of the unique challenges of autism, and that would be written into the statute. Uh, but as it is, um, courts and regulators have to infer those standards from the, the often ambiguous language that's in the law books. Do you think that the way a government handles something like autism reflects a country's deeper values and worldviews? Definitely. Uh, it also reflects the structure of the government uh, because the United States has an extremely complicated system of government. There are over 80,000 different governments in the United States. If you look at uh, states, localities, counties, school districts, and all the rest. Uh, and that adds to the complexity facing uh, the families of people with autism and other disabilities. In a way, though, it can be a bit of an advantage because if you don't get what you want from one level or one government agency, you can appeal it to another. Uh, but this, uh, again, gives advantages to the, uh, to the families with the resources and the wherewithal to do that. Uh, in many respects and uh, many issues, the United States has, uh, uh, has been subject to a lot of criticism in, in its social welfare policies. Uh, before the adopt, enactment of the Affordable Care Act, we were the uh, only major developed country without uh, national health insurance, for example. However, when it comes to autism, uh, although there isn't a great deal of comparative research, uh, the United States actually does reasonably well in comparison with uh, other countries. Uh, in, uh, in some countries, there still remains a stigma surrounding autism. In other countries, the, uh, the treatment of autism is, uh, is not very well developed. The government does not uh, uh, does not provide the kind of resources that we do in the United States. So it's not easy to be autistic anywhere in the world, but uh, if I were on the spectrum, I'd probably prefer to be in the United States than most other countries. I'm also wondering what it's like to be a person researching autism in this country. Can you say something about the current state of research into autism and how it's 
affected, either hampered or encouraged by governmental policy? Oh, uh, that is also an excellent question. Uh, there is a governmental body, the IAC, the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, that uh, is uh, in a sense a broad coordinating body for the various uh, levels of autism research uh, financed uh, by uh, the federal government. Uh, and uh, not surprisingly, it's complicated. There are a variety of government agencies that, uh, that subsidize autism research in various ways. And one that might be very surprising is the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense, huh. it, yeah, DOD is a major funder of autism research. Now, uh, Why? well, because Congress said so. <laughs> <laughs> because DOD had some money uh, and members of Congress uh, figured, okay, we can uh, we can earmark some of this to autism research. Uh, there isn't necessarily any rhyme or reason to that, but uh, believe me, I study Congress and it's not surprising there isn't any rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> uh, Department of Health and Human Services uh, is a major uh, funder of autism research. Uh, National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Mental Health, uh, the Education Department. And also, there are, uh, in addition to all of that, there are a variety of, uh, of private foundations uh, that, uh, that fund it as well. All that said, the focus of research is, like everything else in autism, uh, controversial. Uh, Self-advocates point out that a large portion of the money in autism research is going to research on genetics and biology. Uh, they argue that much more should be going to improving the quality of services in the here and now. And this gets to some very different perspectives. If you talk to uh, parents of uh, kids who are very severely affected by autism, they very much support some kind of medical intervention. To, to put it very crudely, they're looking for the pill for autism. They're looking for the so-called cure. There are other people, uh, the, uh, the uh, many uh, autistic self-advocates, uh, who find that attitude to be deeply offensive. Uh, years ago, there was uh, one version of the statute was called the Combating Autism Act, and they objected to that because they're saying, if you're combating autism, you're combating me. Uh, a lot of the self-advocates regard autism as part of their, their identity, something that they embrace. Uh, and um, so they're uh, they're extremely dubious of the uh, measures to so-called cure autism, and uh, they want to focus more of the research efforts again to helping people in the here and now, getting adaptations and assistive devices uh, for people who are nonverbal. So this is an issue that is extremely contentious, extremely controversial, because it really gets to people's lives, the, the way they live their life and their, uh, their whole sense of identity. So when you said earlier that there's a certain, a certain faction of research that is looking into biology and genetics associated with autism, what, what, is, what are the implications of that? Does that mean research into a cure or even research into ways of preventing it? Well, again, uh, you know, this is like an onion. You peel one layer and, and you find another layer. This is uh, this leads to yet more uh, deep controversy. 
As it stands now, the only way to diagnose autism is to observe behavior. There is no medical test for autism. There's no blood test. There's no brain scan that can reliably uh, diagnose autism. Uh, but some of the research may eventually point out to a blood test, uh, something uh, roughly uh, akin to amniocentesis. Uh, and that raises many, many deep problems. Uh, what if, for example, there were a test that could tell you that a developing fetus had a strong likelihood of being autistic? That raises the entire issue of abortion. Uh, and that is potentially as controversial as it's possible to get in the political world. Uh, because it's uh, it's cross-cutting. Many uh, people who are self-advocates uh, for autism would normally be pro-choice, but they would regard something like that as very, very alarming. Uh, and uh, so that if, uh, if perchance there ever were some kind of prenatal test for autism, uh, that would uh, unleash enormous controversy. So... What do you believe to be the prospects for government policy, for autism services and research under the Trump administration? Uh, one surprise in the Trump administration is this. Uh, during the campaign, uh, Trump actually promoted the idea that vaccines cause autism, and it's something that he had said many times before. Uh, and during the transition, he briefly met with uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was a leading, to put it bluntly, conspiracy theorist uh, promoting uh, the idea of autism as a result of vaccines. And uh, Kennedy said that Trump had promised to appoint him to a so-called vaccine safety commission. Uh, it turns out none of that's happened. There's no, there's no so-called vaccine safety commission. And Trump's appointments to key posts, uh, Department of Health and Human Services, CDC, FDA, have tended to be people who are very pro-vaccine. So critics of Trump say that he betrays everybody. And in this case, uh, a lot of serious people in the autism community think, say, thank God he betrayed uh, the, pro, uh, the, the, the proponents of the vaccine theory. When it comes to research, however, uh, uh, the Trump administration proposed some uh, significant overall cuts in, uh, in scientific research, but Congress restored them. Uh, so the, uh, the situation for funding for autism research it, uh, looks a lot better than it did at the beginning of the administration. As time goes on, we'll see because the government is under enormous fiscal pressure and uh, programs uh, involving healthcare and, uh, and scientific research could continue to be on the chopping block. But for now, uh, it's not as bad as it seemed when he first took office. The last chapter in your book addresses the future of autism and public policy. What should we expect? Well, one, again, we don't know if the true prevalence of autism has increased. Nobody knows that for sure. Uh, but we do know for sure that the number of people with uh, a recognized diagnosis of autism has increased, the people who know that they are autistic. 
uh, and those numbers will continue to increase, particularly among uh, adults. That's the next frontier of the issue. We uh, often speak of autism as if it were a childhood condition. But if you're an autistic child, you're going to be an autistic adult. And services for adults on the spectrum are uh, pretty poor, to put it bluntly. Uh, people talk about the so-called services cliff. Um, under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, once a person uh, reaches his or her 22nd birthday, they no longer qualify. And there are relatively few programs at other levels of government to provide services and supports for such people. As more and more people with uh, a recognized diagnosis of autism enter adulthood, there's going to be more pressure on the system to provide those services. In the longer run, another problem is this. Uh, for people who are more severely affected by autism and need home health care, uh, there is uh, going to be a squeeze on those services because of the aging of the baby boom generation, of whom I'm a member. Um, more and more people are going to have Alzheimer's. And uh, the people with Alzheimer's are also going to need home health care. So there's very likely to be a shortage of the people who provide such services. That is going to continue to be an, uh, an issue. Also, uh, we're going from a political standpoint, because we have more and more people uh, on the spectrum reaching adulthood and who have benefited from ABA and services, uh, they're going to be more and more autistic voters. They're going to be people who on the spectrum are exercising their rights as citizens. And uh, we started to see this in, uh, in recent years, and we're going to see far more activism on the part of, uh, uh, of autistic Americans and autistic citizens. And I would not be surprised if more and more of them get elected to office over time. And I think it, when that happens, we're going to see an even uh, greater public awareness of the issue, and we may see some changes in public policy as a result. Well, John, we're almost out of time, but before we go, you want to tell us what you're working on next? Well, on a day-to-day -day basis, as you mentioned, I keep a blog, uh, Autism Policy, uh, 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 Autism Policy and Politics, AutismPolicyBlog.com. Uh, I update that every day. Uh, as far as my own, my current project, it's actually not very closely related. It's a book about the 1988 uh, presidential election, uh, which uh, after all these years is worth a second look. But there is a connection there because uh, the person who won this uh, that election was George H.W. Bush. And we tend to forget that uh, the Bush administration actually played a very major role in uh, bringing the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, into the law books. And uh, even though it didn't focus specifically on autism, it's been an important resource for people on the spectrum. And I think uh, uh, President George H.W. Bush uh, deserves a lot of credit and uh, deserves a good deal of gratitude for, from Americans for his work on the ADA. Well, I look forward to that book coming out. I hope you'll let us know when it does so that you can come back and talk about it. I, I am curious to know for our listeners who are interested, your blog, Autism Policy and Politics, what will people find there? Uh, they will find daily updates. Um, 
And uh, what I do every morning when I get up, I scan newspapers and magazines and the scientific literature for uh, the latest updates. Sometimes it will be an excerpt from a newspaper story, sometimes an abstract uh, of uh, uh, a medical journal article, uh, sometimes a government report. Uh, but uh, I do this uh, just to uh, stay current with the issue and to provide updates to people with an interest. Uh, and uh, uh, I learn something every day. And uh, the nature of the issue is there's always something more to learn. And do you mind telling us again what the web address is for your blog? www.autismpolicyblog.com. Great. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you about such a such an important, but I guess also such a contentious issue. Thank you. Thank you for educating us about this. Thank you very much. Take care. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to. And I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com and click on contact. Until next time, have a great week.